Hello and welcome once again to 177 Nations of Tasmania. The conflict in Syria, which escalated in 2012, created a humanitarian crisis of massive proportions, with millions fleeing the violence and destruction and attempting to find safe havens in neighbouring countries such as Lebanon, Jordan and Turkey. More than a decade on, the conflict still festers and millions remain displaced. Sandra was a primary school student in a suburb of Damascus when the trouble began, but her family lived through the constant risk of bombs or violence for seven years, before two incidents really shook them and made them realise that they would have to leave. The family would eventually find their way to Lebanon and begin the process of applying to be accepted as refugees by Australia. Then eventually they were settled in Tasmania where Sandra would have to complete her final years of schooling to get into university and pursue her dream to become a teacher. Settling in Tasmania has not been without its challenges for the family, but there have also been achievements. Sorry, my name is Sandra Saad. I'm 24 years old. I born in Syria, specifically in Damascus. My family, my mom, dad, my sister, my brother Shadi, we all lived in a two-bedroom apartment, 10 minutes um, from the center of Damascus. So we lived in a suburb, it's called Jeremana, and it was a 10-minute drive to Damascus. We children all attended a private Christian schools. Our schooling was very family-oriented, as my mom was a teacher there too. Our dad's sister worked there and our cousin attended the same school. So did you have a lot of family living around in the same neighbourhood? Yes. we. So my grandparents had um, a house in the middle of Damascus. My grandparents had that house and then they moved to be near us later on. So I think I was grade three when my whole family was in the same neighbourhood. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was like only five, ten minutes drive to everywhere. And what did your what did your parents do at that time? As I said, my mom was a teacher. Mm-hmm. My dad uh, worked in a HR for a big multinational company uh, that managed uh, well-known stores such as like H and M, Mothercare, if you know. I think in Syria, school for us finished at midday on Fridays. It actually was different because the private schools which they were mostly Christian schools. They will finish early on Friday and have Saturday and Sunday off, mm-hmm. Sunday for the um, for the mass. And then the government school would finish Sunday early. So that was nice. But I was in a Christian private school, um, so school for us finished midday. And my dad would come and pick us up, our cousins, me, my cousins, my sister, my mom, my auntie that worked at the same school, and take us all to his mom house, where we enjoyed the traditional lunch together, there used to be at least 15 of us there. It was uh, by far the best day of the week. And when you say traditional food, what, what would be an example of that? Uh, I think the best thing she cooked, my last memory of these meals in my grandmom, Fafa's bean. It's, um, it's mm-hmm. a beans that she would cook with tomato, parsley and oil. And we eat some pickled cucumbers with it. And I can tell you nobody and nobody uh, could cook those like my grandma did. The smell of... And the smell of the hot bread is another lasting memory. School system in Syria is different from what it is in Australia. Syria schooling is really, really strict. We would be at school at 7, probably 7.30. Like, we'll go out to the bus, waiting for the bus to come and collect us from our apartment. Uh, We'll be at school by 7.30. That's where the day starts. We would finish at around 2 o'clock. We don't have really, you know funny subject or electives <laughs> although we call them in here yeah. like art music even art and music are really strict and they could make you fi- fail the school of that year 
If you don't pass them, I remember we had a very thick science book. It was about 500 pages every year. We had to memorize from the page one to page two. It's the last page to pass the subject. So I wouldn't say school was the funniest or <laughs> nicest part of my life in Syria. So you <laughs> It was mean, pretty stressful. So was it in the classroom, The everyone had to sort of pay attention to the teacher? Yes. And it yes. was directed by the yes. teacher? I was not allowed to look at my teacher eye. Right. Yes, it's really strict. Yeah, like I remember my if my teacher would tell me something and then I look at her in the eye, she was like, put your eyes in the down. I'm like, okay, I put them my eyes down. And she looks at me and is like, when I talk to you, put your eyes up to me. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's really, really strict. And I think what makes it more harder that my mom was teacher there. Mm. And she would know everything I'm doing. So I had to be very straight there. We didn't have laptops. We were not allowed to use our laptops at school. No, none of the schools had laptops, iPad or anything like that. And after school, what, what did you like to do when you were at school? Ooh, after school, we would get home. My mom would be cooking, preparing the lunch for us. Yes, in Syria we have lunch at 3 o'clock. Nani, like like mm-hmm. we have lunch at 3 o'clock. So my mom would be cooking our lunch. Um, I'll get home. I'll, you know, wash my hands, wash my face, get ready for lunch. I'll have my lunch and then I'll start studying. And that'll be 3.30 till 7. That's the time I would be studying. And I had to actually sit down and study and my mom will help us study because the next day my teacher will ask me a question and I have a ton of homeworks to do for the next day. So it was a really stressful time that too. I'll finish studying and then we will go to our family house. It's usually my grandparents' house that we will go and visit. And, you know, sometimes we go to cousins or auntie, but we have to visit someone every day. Mm-hmm, like it's mm-hmm. it's weird if you don't go to someone's house to visit or they come to your house. And um, yeah, we'll come back home. Time to sleep. The war started when I was in year four. It began with the protests in the streets. And um, at first we were not too worried about it. We thought it was just only a protest at the end, you know. After all, just a protest. Um, but then four months later, things began to escalate uh, with ISIS got involved. Uh, it was literally overnight uh, that we realized things were really serious. Question about yeah. when did you like realize it was ser- or what made you realize it was serious? I remember waking up one day to the news saying that there are it's a it's a suburb in Syria. It was like I think two hour drive from us from Nazgis, um was falling down. It, all the houses were bombed mm-hmm. and we saw that the first thing in the news overnight. We woke up to that in the news. Dara is is on the you know, it's on the ground like Nothing left, no buildings, all the people, all the civilians, people there were dead. And that's what we made us like, oh my God, it's really close. It was scary. <laughs> so we actually lived um, with the war raging around, us for, raging around us for seven years. And, you know, believe it or not, life went on despite the madness that was happening around us. To survive and not go crazy, we ended up normalizing the endless car bombings. Missiles, attacks, um, general chaos, and accepting that we no longer ever felt safe. But you have to normalize it because I was a, otherwise you'll go crazy. So when you say normalize, what what does that mean in practical terms? So uh, you would you know have a, a missile falling down, lots of people dying in their next neighborhood, and two hours later, you know someone will come clean the blood, take the bodies of the people died. 30 minutes later, everyone back in the street as normal. Like nothing have happened. Right. 
Mm. But did did you did um, change anything in your behavior or your routines, anything like that? Yes, it, it definitely did. Like um, I remember my mom would never let us going out by ourselves. And yeah, she can't protect us from the missile, obviously, but she thought, okay, if you're going to die, we'll die all together. Right. That was the idea of her. So wherever we're going, she would be with us. Like you would sleep and you never know if you're going to wake up the next day or not. And did you have like a, a shelter or somewhere safe to go? For our house, it was the bathroom. It was the strongest room in our house because it had rooms on both sides and then on all sides, actually. And then on the top, we had the storage room. So whenever the missile will fall down, it will fall on that area before the bathroom. So that was our safe place for that specific house. I think in the first year that happened, we were like, oh, let's not leave house and things. But, you know, when you live seven years of the war, you can't just stay at home. Mm. Life had to go as normal, despite the missile flying overhead. Doesn't matter. You just have to live your life and go out and hope you don't die. So I guess that means that the, the it wasn't a constant, the war wasn't constantly going on around you. There would be sort of times when it got worse and yes, better. Yes, uh, I think until now the war goes in ups and downs. I think we had a month where we had a car bombing every single day and you never know where, like, you know, you could be walking near a car and suddenly it's explode. And then we had a month where the car bombing was happening everywhere and you walk near a car, you never know it's going to be exploded in the next seconds or not. But then the next month we had a really quiet month, you know, mm-hmm. and then we go again. You never know when it's going to happen. And so did that kind of situation make you feel more anxious or did you just learn to accept it? It, it? We did definitely feel anxious, but yeah, we did just learn to live with it. Yeah, again, you just have to. Even me now thinking about it, I'm like, how did I, how did, like, you know, how, how, how was I able to normalize that? It drove me crazy. So I try not to think about it as much and you you not be able to think about it. You would just die from thinking, I think. You'll kill yourself from thinking. Maybe we thought of, you know, not leave the house for the first year because we thought, okay, things will gonna end at some point. But the, the war is still going till now. That's, um, that's lots of years. You know, we lived seven years of the war and if we have locked ourselves, it would be a problem. And so what, at what stage did your family decide that you need to leave? There was actually two incidents that made my family think, okay, it's time to flee. When I was grade nine, that something happened that uh, actually shattered our new normal. In a rare moment of respite from the war, uh, we, three siblings, me, Sally and Chaddy, uh, were sitting outside on our balcony uh, with uh, mom preparing our lunch. We're giggling and joking, like, you know, normal normal we will do. Uh, despite the war, we actually felt at that moment life was okay. You know, good, you feel good here and there. Dad calls us to come to the table and we went. Then, barely one second later, we heard a deafening explosion. We knew straight away it was the missile. Uh, we automatically took refuge into the bathroom. We crushed there, sh- um, trembling our hearts, bounding, fearing for our lives. Uh, when the shocking dust cleared, Dad made a shocking discovery. The missile had completely destroyed the balcony. Nothing was left there of where we were sitting, laughing and talking, 
only seconds before. Nothing but gaping void actually. All the furniture were raining down. Amid the dust, um, the event rocked us to our very core. The memory of how close we came to certain death on that day still haunts and triggers us. But on a lighter note, mom now said that from um, from then on, until we left Syria, she slept with every night with one eye open, as if that one open eye could stop an ISIS missile in its track. This uh, balcony incident was followed by another traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Uh, the following year, so I was grade 10, that final one day while my, was, my mom was teaching at her school, a missile fell short of its intended target, um, hitting one of the grade 4 classrooms where it, ex- it exploded. My sister, Sally, was in grade 4 at the time, but in all the panic, noise, smoke and chaos, Mom was uncertain which grade 4 classroom has been hit. Frozen in a terror and shock, she could not bring herself to run towards the place where the missile had exploded, fearing that she might find her daughter's broken and bloody body. To make matters worse, so many missiles had rained on Damascus that day that the mobile network was jammed, so mom could not contact me at another school to see whether I was still alive or not. As it turned out, by the grace of God, Sally's classroom was undamaged and I was okay too. At that stage, ISIS were only 10 minutes drive away from our suburb. I would say it's roughly the distance between Hobart City to Glenorchy. And it was way too close for comfort. And yes, it was the most definitely time to get out of Syria. Yeah, that sounds like a, it's a very close and mm. scary mm. call. Yeah. These two incidents just made my family like, my mum think, okay, it's time. It's time to leave. And so what, what was the, the process of, of leaving? Did, did you have much time to, to plan, plan ahead and work out where you were going to go? So I think after this incident, my family was like, okay, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. And we had a problem like what to take with us. So we eventually just packed some clothes, our ID cards and other personal personal papers, um, you know, our Syrian passport, leaving behind our photos, school certificates, um, sport trophies and academic and academic and school um, sport trophies, I would say, and other irreplaceable treasures. But we knew we could not look back. It was done for us. It was, that's it. But I would, I would still say we were among the lucky ones. At that point, we had a car and schooled into Lebanon legally. Uh, others people were not so fortunate. Uh, soldiers desert, deserting the army and younger, ma- younger men avoiding conscriptions or people escaping from suburbs already controlled by ISIS uh, had to hide and travel on foot mm. under um, the cover of darkness, alert to every little noise. So for our family, it took us four hours to do what used to be a 30-minute to maximum 60-minute trip to Beirut. The roads were jammed with traffic, and at every single checkpoint, the soldiers had to search the entire car, uh, including checking beneath it, beneath it for possible bomb, and then checks that name against um, a list of soldiers, against a list of soldiers, yep, uh, to be sure was he was not desert- deserting um, uh-huh. from the army. We were anxious because we knew they often mistook innocent people for ones on their wanted list with the same name. 
but God was with us. And I think once more that day, our luck held. And do, do you remember what it was like when you arrived in, was Beirut that you arrived in? Yeah, yeah. we arrived in Beirut. So we were not able to afford uh, to rent a normal house. So lucky for us, my mom's cousin had a house that she was able to rent for us for a cheaper rent. Also, Lebanon was not in a state of war. It was far from welcoming heaven for refugees like us, unfortunately. While the Lebanese people generally tolerated um, our presence, they did not offer us a very warm welcome because their economy was suffering from the influx of thousands of refugees. Uh, the Lebanese government could, could not give us any financial support, but we were lucky enough, as I say, to have my mom's cousin living in Beirut. So she provided us with a house for a very low and cheap rent. So we did not have to go into any of the refugees camps and we did not have to register for the United Nation. As we knew, we wanted at that point that we want to go to Australia. So that was that was that was your intent rather than just an accident. Yep, yep. that's um, my dad's friend in Damascus had already advised us to get to Australia as it has um, Australia had a good re- reputation for welcoming and supporting refugees like us. So that was my our intention to go to Australia. What was the process for trying to get to Australia? That's interesting. That's a long question. <laughs> I have a lot to say. Um, so we made a direct application to the Australian Embassy in Beirut, and that was the easy part. I think filling up the application in English. Uh, the hard part was actually not knowing how long the progress the progress would take. And all the while we were using our savings to just survive, we soon discovered that life was much more expensive in Lebanon than what it was in Syria. It was very difficult also to find a job in Lebanon. And those who did find a job were paid a lower wage than Lebanese worker did. And so were you... Were uh, Syrians legally allowed to work in Lebanon or did they We were legally allowed to work, yep. But again, you would find um, a job and you will get paid a much lower wage than um, Lebanese worker. Um, Eventually, after swinging between hope and despair for nine long months, we got the long-awaited call from the embassy. We had to go for an an interview. Uh, Each of us was interviewed separately. Uh, to check that our stories were the same. It was very stressful. They asked questions like, why are you going to Australia? What are you going to do there? Are you pregnant? (laughs) Yeah, I know. My sister, who was 14, and I was 16, and mom had to undergo a pregnancy test. No one explained why. And we did not ask. Honestly, we were just happy to be one step closer to perhaps going to Australia. Um, We were asked whether we had tattoos. Or had plastic surgeries. I don't know why. <laughs> we just felt humiliated. Yes. And did anyone in your family speak English um, no, at the time? No. Yeah. None of us did speak English. No. At all. So that's another difficulty. Yes. <laughs> it was definitely another difficulty, especially when we arrived in here. I actually never realized before how much like torture it is <laughs> to wait for a life-changing news. But luckily for us, we found out only one month later. I believe it was a month later. It felt like it was a decade, um, not like a month. To prepare for us, um, prepare us for the for our new home, the embassy provided us with a workshop. In During that workshop, we were told we were going to Tasmania. Okay. And we were always like, where on earth is that? We never heard of Tasmania before. And did you get any information about Tasmania at those workshops? Not really, no. 
what, what they did in the workshop is they actually showed us some uh, videos from all the St- uh, Syrian arriving to Australia. Okay. And the videos were really a concern for us. The houses looked really, really old. Now we realize that probably these houses have belonged decades. This ha- like these Syrian have arrived to Australia decades before. And this house have been belonged to that era. And the, another thing that we've been told in Australia, um, in the workshop is, as like, you know, we've been told that Australia would not say hello to us in the streets. Like, you know, how in the really? Middle East. Yeah, that's what we've been told. And now my mom always saying, and she always tell me how wrong that was. Every time, you know, every time um, someone says hi to her and give her a friendly greeting. What did you know about Australia before you came? And what did you expect, maybe? Uh, so everyone, everybody knew that Australia was hot. And um, we imagined, Tas- and we've been told that Tasmania is an island. So we imagined Tasmania was a tropical island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we would be greeted oh by smiling girls. And I thought I would be greeted by smiling girls in a hula skirt um, who would offer us pineapple and coconut, coconut <laughs> cocktails. Mm. And a place um, colorful lace uh, around our necks. So imagine our shock when we arrived in Hobart without a warm jacket or warm clothing on a cold rainy day in 2017. What, what time of year was it? Uh, it was in March. Yeah. Okay. It was in March 2017, but it was raining really badly. But that's all what I thought. Do you remember what your first feelings or first impressions were when you arrived in Tasmania? So we've been greeted by our caseworker from the Catholic Care. And um, she drove us from the back roads, from the airport to our temporary accommodation. And we would not be able to see anything but the bush. And we were thinking, where are we going? So we arrived on Friday. She drove us to Centrelink on Monday. And I was like, I would never be able to, you know, to remember where Centrelink is next week. and not be able to remember where the bank is next week. So, yeah, it was really hard. I thought, I don't know how I'm going to live here. And what was, what was it like to go to school here at first? So I was given the choice either to go to TAFE to learn English or I can go to school. And I choose to go to school. I choose to go to Guildford Young College, which I'm, which I'm actually very, very thankful for them uh, because they provided me with all the support I needed at that point because I didn't speak any English at all. I remember like having a headache when I come back home because people are speaking for the whole, like from, you know, from eight to three in English and I did not understand a word. I did three years in college, so I did grade 11, 12, and they gave me the chance to do grade 13, which was really nice of them. But yeah, going to school in here wasn't that easy, especially the first year. I did not understand a word at all. Mm. And it was hard. And what do you think was the most difficult thing to adapt to in the first few years that you were living here? I think adapting to the culture in general, mm-hmm. I think, um, because all the Syrian that came with us, we arrived as a couple of family, they all moved to the mainland. So I think that was hard to adapt to us being by ourselves. And yeah, Sonia are super friendly, as I said, but we still missed, you know, having this family going to every night where we used to, or that was, that was I think, the hardest part mm-hmm. to adapt to. I think why we stayed in Tasmania was that we went to good schools, and I think for me personally, uh, I've been told if I would go to the mainland, I would go directly to TAFE, 
and my goal at that point was to actually go to uni mm-hmm. and I knew it was hard with not speaking English at all but I knew that probably going to school would give me a bigger chance to go to uni so that was our first thing and then we wanted to learn English um, we have family that arrived before us to Melbourne or Sydney or the mainland in general. And till now, they don't speak in English. And I think that was our main goal. We wanted to adapt to where we are now. We're in Australia, we want to learn their culture, we want to learn their language. And I, I can tell you now, I, I'm 100% sure if I'm in Sydney or Melbourne or any another place in the mainland, I wouldn't be speaking a word of English. They live all together. You can understand why people want to be together, but at the same time, uh, it makes you're kind of staying in your comfort zone aren't you mm. oh yeah 100 percent. yeah it's um it definitely wasn't our comfort zone to stay here and another thing is i remember is arriving to here on friday so our case worker showed us the house where we're staying she provided us with some food in the fridge already and she left us for our own devices for the next two days and i think if we were in the mainland we would have had much more people coming and friends to come and help us, but we were left to it. Luckily, we had um, a Syrian person that came to visit us and showed us around. But I think if we were in the mainland, we would have been much more confident because lots of people would have came. And um, even if I would say the churches, there's lots of Arabic churches in there that would come and greet you on the first day and chose you all around. While in here, we didn't have all of that. But on the other hand, I suppose you've been able to become more independent. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it definitely does money helped us to be more independent. I had to learn easy thing, but I had to learn how to use the GPS, you know, the map to go somewhere. I we don't use it in Syria, it's banned. Okay. It's banned in Syria. All right. It's banned in Syria and Lebanon, so we don't really use it. And I come here and I had to go somewhere and I was like, Okay, I gotta use the GPS and I remember I put it and I think I walked for forty minutes. <laughs> yes. I've learned how to drive. And I thought in Tasmania it was a really important thing to know how to drive. Mm. And we all now drive in the family. And yeah, I definitely learned how to be independent. Yeah, I think if I was anywhere else in the mainland, because I can see people and um, maybe they're better than me. Maybe they're more amazing than me. But unfortunately, they were not able to do any steps in their life still yet. They still not learned English. I think that's the main thing in yeah. Australia to move on in life and to have a new start and a fresh start to learn the language. And yeah, they still don't speak any English, unfortunately. Not driving. Yeah, you can certainly, if you live in Melbourne or Sydney, you can get by without English, but you... Oh, 100%. It's much yeah. harder to get on in your life mm. uh, to, to be successful. Yeah. And, and your options will always be a bit limited. You'll, you'll be restricted to that community, I would yeah. say. And I know some people say, oh, it depends on you if you would go there and see a new community or you go out. But I think when you see the community and everything is there, you'll find, oh, this is an easy choice. Why would I go to the harder choice? Yeah. You know, but when here we have left with only the hard choice. I always wanted to be a teacher. Like, mm-hmm. that's something I've done before in Syria. I've worked with children for a long time in Syria since I was really young. And um, this is something I always wanted. Okay. And that was what I wanted to do. I, oh, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I never knew what I want to teach. Okay. If I, want to say, I was like, oh, how would I want to teach? But in Syria, uh, being a teacher, it's, it's a good job. It's an amazing job. It's not well paid. So whenever I wanted to be a, a teacher in Syria, I knew that was not the best choice for me. I would not get will-paid salary. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and it'll make my life harder, even though if I liked it. But when I came to Australia, I was like, oh, it's my chance to be what I wanted to be. <laughs> yeah, I never knew what I wanted to actually teach, but yeah, I wanted. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. And so how did you go about um, getting into uni and finding out what you wanted to study? Something I was good at, surprisingly, I never thought I'm actually good at, is mathematics. And luckily, mathematics didn't need lots of English. So that's how I started my second year of schooling with Fijian College. I did pure mathematics units. And they were this unit had really high ATAR as Mathematics 3, Mathematics 4, and General Math 3. So I've done all kind of mathematics to get my ATAR. And um, I was able to get to, to uni. What would you say is maybe the, the biggest cultural difference between Syria and I think the um the close knit with the extended families. Mm-hmm. I think the, the families in general in Syria we still miss the close knit need extended family we mm-hmm. left behind and the huge celebrations for birthdays for first communions um baptisms um engagements and wedding that are typically typical of life in Syria. Uh, I especially feel homesick at Christmas time, for example, mm-hmm. when I see photos and video on Facebook of Damascus full um, decked out in lights and decorations, as only Syrian city could be. You know, it's a big celebration, Christmas and Easter. Uh, life in general, generally more lively and loud in Syria mm-hmm. in the best possible way. Uh, cities are bustling and switched on. 24 hours, 7 24-7 mm-hmm. hours. Uh, life revolves around the family and community. And yes, uh, we miss all of that, but we don't miss the wall. You do miss all of that. Tell me a bit about Christmas in um, Damascus and what happens. So the day before, everyone, everyone in Damascus, doesn't, mean, doesn't matter if you're Christian, we are Christian, but it doesn't matter if you're Christian or Muslim, everyone would go to the hairstylist, get their hair done, get their makeup done. We all buy cl- new clothes weeks before. Uh, so in the morning of the, Chris- of the Christmas, we would go to the church. We would have a, a church or two in every suburb. So they would be full of people. So we would go there, have the mass done. And then after the mass, we have the um, church. I'll say the church groups. And they go every Christmas. And there will be lots of them, be around like 200 in each church group that will play music and they would walk all around the suburb and um so like a parade yeah i would say so yeah they would go all around and you would listen to them playing christmas music and um okay yeah it, it's beautiful they would go all around the suburb sometimes their walk will take two hours after that we will directly go to the grandparents house where all the family will be there having lunch after the lunch we would be all the family together but then you will go f- visit another part of the family, you know, like my cousin is there, like, all right, what are you doing tonight? Oh, we're waiting for you, okay, at six o'clock, we'll be going to that grand, the another cousin house, visit them, you know, having Christmas celebration with them, opening Christmas uh, gifts at the grandparents' house. It's a beautiful, beautiful celebration in Syria. Lots of food, lots of love. And, and do all the different Christian denominations celebrate together? Yes, Christmas, yes. Yeah. 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 In Christmas because, because I know here you have the Orthodox, they have it in January and mm. Catholics and No, in Syria the Christmas is always the same. Mm-hmm. I think only the Easter that goes into two. Yep. So we have the Orthodox Easter and the Catholic Easter. 
again it goes all around Easter I remember even in the Good Friday in the evening where the church group will go out and play the sad music and have the casket the Jesus casket they will hold a big casket up Mm -hmm. um and even all the Muslims shops will close by night when their caskets um and the music the sad music will cross by everything will be closed and the lights is off Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, we also prayed together. Yeah, so it was okay. beautiful. It was beautiful. But what would be a typical family event and how would you sort of celebrate together? Mother Day. I think Mother okay. Day. Mother Day is one of the... It's in it's in April in Syria because... I think they associated in April because it's the beginning of spring in Syria. So they shared mothers with spring and um, we would... Again, we would have the mother day at one of my grandparents house but again like if it's my grandmother house that is related to my mom so my another grandma will also come so the whole family will be all together we would have cakes and lots of gifts and everyone celebrates so that's that's another big thing Again, I think we heard a lot of people. We had lots of friends in Melbourne and Sydney saying, oh, yeah, there's lots of Arabic people. You have all the restaurants, all the lovely food you find. We came to Tasmania and there was none of that. So it was another shock. Yeah. Mm. No, there's not much. There's not that much in the way of Arabic food here, is there? Or Middle Eastern food? There, there's no Arabic. There's no actual Arabic on like Syrian or Lebanese supermarket in here at all. Yeah, like I wouldn't find any kind of the cheeses I used to eat anywhere unless I got to Melbourne or Sydney. So, yeah, my mom have to had to learn how to cook all this stuff by herself, making cheese by herself and oh, really? making pastries by herself. Where we used to just you know buy it from the street in the neighborhood because we had a, like the bread back bakery in every street. Now I'm not gonna say suburb, every single street had a bakery and had a supermarket. But yeah, my mom had to learn all of that by herself. Now she's nailing it. So, that's, <laughs> that's good. good. That's, that's good. good. Yep. She's a really good cooker, so that's good. Oh, well, I guess that's one of the those things that you might not have done if you hadn't come to Tasmania. No, my mom never thought she would be sitting at home making cheese. No, she never thought of that. And, yeah, I think lots of things we were in Syria we take it for granted, like, you know, the bread we used to have with the cheese and the thyme and on top. And, yeah, lots of these little things, like the sweets. Mm-hmm. My mom had to make them here. And she never thought she going to learn how to make the sweet because... Why would you, you know? And everything before the war in Syria was pretty cheap. With your normal, normal salary, you'd be able to afford a very good life. Yeah, I'm buying everything from the street. You never need to actually make it at home. You've just reminded me of a question I wanted yeah. to ask, and that was about how your parents have adapted, or especially at the beginning. Uh, I imagine it was a bit more difficult for them. It's definitely more difficult. I think you can see it between us. Like, you know, my brother is eight years younger than me, Shadi, and you can see his English is just perfect. No accent. He's he's fluent. He's totally fluent. Where you can see my sister, where she's three, younger, three years younger than me, she has still perfect English. But it's maybe a little bit less perfect than Shari. And then it's me where my English is okay. And then I think that's made it so hard for my family too because they're much older than us um, to learn the language. My mom definitely found it hard that there is no family around us, no Arabic people around us that she can communicate with as much and she can go to visit every single day. I think they also really struggled with, my, with the job. Mm-hmm. My dad um, luckily found a job at a fish and sheep shop. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to just cook as a casual. But he used to be... HR and yeah. he was in effect the only 
per, per, like you know the only person in charge in Syria from the company, and he was like in fact the CEO for the company, mm. and um, yeah, now he just work as a fish and chip, and he's he's very grateful and he's very thankful and yeah, really thankful for God for what we have been given, but it's definitely hard. Yeah, they definitely find it much more harder. My mom still struggled mm. to find a job that she would really enjoy. Because I, I guess her with her skills as a teacher. Mm. English is really important. Yes. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe even a bit higher level than yeah. average. Oh, 100%. Yes. She would not be able to be a teacher again in here for sure. It's really hard unless she decides to go to the mainland and teach in some of the Arabic mm-hmm. school, teaching Arabic. But again, I think you need to have that teacher degree to be there. And I think it would be really hard for her to actually go back to uni at this age. Not to say she's old. If she listened to me, she'd be so mad. <laughs>